Joseph spoke about the incredible force of intention and its pivotal role in understanding ethics and morality and karma. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. As far as I I understand it, at the time that the Buddha gave that particular teaching, it was something of a social revolution. In many of the philosophical systems in the time of the Buddha, morality was considered to be tied to one's social class or caste or gender, so that that which was considered appropriate and moral and spiritual and uplifting for a Brahmin male might be considered unlawful and unethical and completely inappropriate for an outcast or a Brahmin female. The Buddha came along and said, social, class, caste, gender means nothing. That everything rests on the tip of motivation. That an action born out of love and compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity, wisdom, would have a certain kind of consequence, no matter who did it, their age, their gender, their class, their social position. It was quite radical as a teaching. It cut through all of those distinctions. It took away the possibility of any particular group of people having the right, the only right, to mediate with the divine. It set no one apart from anybody else. Everything rests upon the tip of motivation. I want to talk tonight about some of the most powerful conditioned forces that we find within ourselves that motivate us, that form the basis for our intention quite a lot of the time, and how these particular conditioned forces are purified, transformed through the power of the practice. The first of these very powerful forces we find in the mind is that of greed or desire or attachment or grasping. That is the force in the mind that seeks to define just exactly what it is we need in order to be happy. The feelings of desire or wanting are natural. But getting lost in them, we might easily hurt ourselves or hurt somebody else. We may forsake a lot or make a lot of compromises in order to achieve the object of our desire. And so ironically, there's, there's often a feeling of loss that accompanies desire. There can be a lot of loneliness that accompanies desire because when we fixate when we determine that our happiness lies in having and keeping a person, an object, a situation, 
then often we feel in competition with other people, other demands, other situations. And so it can be very lonely as well. The source of our happiness is seen as quite limited. It's all contained in this magical promise, one situation, one object, one thing, one person. And yet attaching to what we think we need in order to be happy can tremendously contract our lives. It can limit us rather than opening us to many possibilities of happiness. I often think about having gone to India so many years ago and how grateful I am that I didn't go to India with a giant list of everything I would require in order to be happy, like hot running water or water (laughs) or anything. Because if I had had that list and that was determining what I was able to experience, I would either never have gone or never have stayed and thereby have missed the great opening period of my life, the most profound and in many ways the happiest period of my life. What is it that we really need in order to be happy right now? Do we need anything? I sometimes tell the story about a friend of ours who one year invested in the stock market. I can't remember exactly the year, but you might. It was the year that the stock market went radically, radically down. And this friend found that having invested this money and had the stock market go down, he was then obsessively paying attention to the media. He was reading every newspaper, he was watching the news on television, listening to it on the radio, all with an eye to trying to decide if he was going to be able to recoup his money. So he, he would hear about war and famine and all kinds of devastation and immediately he would start thinking, I wonder how that's going to affect my stocks until finally he felt that his state of loss, the loss of his basic values, his sense of of interconnection, which had been tremendous prior to that investment, the loss was not worth whatever money he might make back. And so he in fact sold his stocks and was much happier. But it can give us this kind of narrow vision. I must have this. And it must be this way. And everything else refers back to that need rather than standing on its own, perhaps offering us some insight, some compassion, some joy in and of itself. What is it that I really need right now in order to be happy? When we are filled with grasping, when that is our our primary motivating force, then we live in a state of having. We define our relatedness to objects, to people, to the body, to the mind, to our lives as one of having. 
and necessarily there is a distance or a duality, a separation that's created between the subject and the object, the one who has and what they have. Because of that separation, there's fear, there's isolation, there's this continual sense of needing to somehow control this thing, this person, this situation, which is so needed for our happiness. What if it changes? What if it goes away? What if it transforms into something else? What if it breaks? Then all our happiness would therefore break. It's a very fearful state, this needing to control. Many of you know that I've recently written a book, which was my first book, and it just got published maybe three weeks ago. came out while we were in California teaching uh, the retreat that we're teaching just before this one. And the publisher had sent me just two books. He FedExed it to me in California, which was the first time I'd seen it. And it was really great. It was a wonderful experience to finally see the book after so many years of working on it. And then we were in the place where we were teaching, and one of our fellow teachers in All Innocence said to me, oh, I can't wait until I get my own copy of the book so that I can dog ear it. And at that moment, I clutched the book to my chest, and I looked at her kind of wild-eyed, and I said, you're going to dog ear my book? <laughs> and then I thought, oh my God. <laughs> you know, I, look at this. And I had this image of myself turning into one of those really odd people who writes a very strange will, you know, that decades after their death, they want to be able to control something or somebody, you know. And I thought, well, this is time to let go. But that is that, is that sense of, of having. It's mine. We have it toward the body as well. And so we feel betrayed and we feel resentful when the body changes in a way that we do not like. As the Buddha said, craving brings anxiety and fear. This is not to say that this kind of upwelling of grasping or attachment, possessiveness, is bad or wrong. It's not something that we need to judge ourselves for or feel scornful of ourselves for. It's a conditioned force. It arises out of conditions. If we can see it clearly, we see its ephemeral nature. It's transparent in a way. It's like a cloud moving through the sky. It is really because of how we relate to it that we either fall into it and suffer or can see it for what it is and transform it. It's the fearful quality of craving that is one great source of its pain. The other great source of its pain 
is the endlessly seeking quality of it. We are constantly needing a new series of stimulants in order to fulfill an experience of craving. There's never enough because everything that we experience seems to have the nature of changing all of the time. Some years ago, and I talked about this in, in some of my groups, some years ago there was a, a French perfume that was manufactured. It's called Samsara perfume. And samsara is the Pali or Sanskrit word for this world of birth and death, constant change. We talk about wandering through samsara, lost. So it was a very funny name for a perfume. When it came out, probably at least 50 of my friends sent me magazine clippings saying, look at this. Because what was so amusing about the ads that were put in for samsara perfume were statements like, a timeless fulfillment. <laughs> Buy samsara perfume. And you think, wow, $75 and I'll have timeless fulfillment? That's a pretty good deal. It's things like that. It's an infatuation, it's an enchantment. All of the possibilities we can project onto some thing, like a little bottle of perfume, for now. But then it changes, something happens. So we need to replace it, and we replace it with something else. And so it's endless. And this is also very restless. It's a kind of unease that comes from just wanting more and more and more and more. This force is something that comes and goes, as they all are. There's a very beautiful teaching of the Buddha in which he said, the mind is by nature radiant. It's shining. It is because of these visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The mind is naturally shining. It's because of these visiting forces that we suffer. The word in Pali is kalesa, and the very common, the usual translation of that is defilement, which is a somewhat unfortunate translation because it has certain moralistic overtones. I think of it as, as being somewhat mid-Victorian. You know, somebody saying, oh, I'm so defiled. And it's not meant to be judgmental. The actual literal translation of the term kalesa is torment of the mind. And that we can get behind. You know, we know that when we are lost in certain states, we are consumed by craving, we're consumed by desire, by possessiveness, by wanting. It is a torment. And yet, this force is only visiting. It comes and it goes. It arises out of conditions and it will pass. 
I think of it sometimes as I get this image of myself sitting quietly at home, minding my own business, having a perfectly good time, and I hear a knock on the door. So I get up, I open the door, and there's grasping on the other side. And I say, welcome home, it's all yours. (laughs) Rather than acknowledging its presence and letting it go. It's like we forget who is rightfully at home. We forget that the mind is naturally shining. We get confused, we identify. And because of that particular relationship to these forces, we suffer. If we learn more appropriate and skillful ways of being with a klesa such as grasping, it will purify, it will release. It will be uprooted, it will cease to take root in us. And what transforms, what this force of grasping transforms into is actually one of generosity. Rather than this attachment, which is so much pulling everything toward us and trying to hold on to it, trying to stay in control, generosity is yielding, it's opening, it's relinquishing. It's like taking a very tight fist and opening it. They say that as the Buddha actually taught in his time, he always began any Dharma teaching by talking about generosity. Because the the nature, the flavor of giving is just that essence of, of the path. It's that opening, letting go, relinquishing, ceasing to hold on, ceasing to clutch, And it's joyful. It's tremendously joyful. We practice generosity both externally, in terms of giving, giving of our time, of our goods, of our service, and also internally. It's that moment of letting go of something. It's a moment of generosity of the spirit. Not needing to clutch and identify and invite that, that force in and say, we'll take over. So when we let go of something like craving, which we see arise in our mind, that very letting go is an act of generosity. It's not one of dislike and fear and distaste and judgment. Buddha always began his teaching with talking about generosity. And it is a source of tremendous joy. As we pull in less and less and experience that opening, that that letting go, it is a source of great joy. It's joyful as we contemplate giving something. It's joyful in the giving of it. And it's joyful if we reflect back on it on that action. I was talking the other night about um, Burma, practicing in Burma, and what it's like to receive a meal there. I talked about how 
all of the meals are provided through the incredible generosity of the people of that country. And sometimes it would be so amazing because we walk into the dining room in that particular monastery in a very formal processional. So it's, it's quite um, elegant, just the walk into the dining room. And then coming into the dining room, as is customary, there's a Buddha statue there, there's an image, so you bow three times, as is the, the tradition. So that has a certain elegance to it as well. And then invariably, you kind of glance at the table to see what there is to eat. And sometimes there was virtually nothing. There would be a little plate of fish paste, which <laughs> is kind of rotten anyway, <laughs> uh, is really rotten anyway, <laughs> you know, and some broken white rice, and that would be it. And this is 10 o'clock in the morning, that's when lunch is, and the next meal is 5 a.m. the next day with no snacks coming after this lunch. There's no tea, there's no coffee, there's no fruit, there's no milk, there's nothing. So this is it. So then you kind of glance at the table and see that it was just rice and fish paste. And it's like our hearts would just sink. And then we'd sit down and start to eat. And many times the people who've made the offering actually come to watch you eat. And here it was incredible because these people would be literally dressed in rags. You know, it's like the clothes were falling off their bodies and they were so happy to be feeding you. They were radiant. You know, so having gone through all of those different mind states of like the formal processional and all the kind of, you know, good feeling, stateliness of that and then bowing and then kind of looking at the table, you know, and then finally sitting down, they would be so happy to be feeding us that that question would really come up. You know, what is it that I really need right now in order to be happy? Because what they were giving and what we were receiving was so much more than that fairly unpleasant or unattractive meal. So it's really, it's a beautiful and joyful practice to be engaged in exploring this question of generosity both inner and outer. And it works naturally, it arises spontaneously as, as grasping recedes, gets purified through our clear seeing and appropriate relationship. And it's also a practice that we undertake to consciously be working with giving. And it doesn't matter, just like in this case, it doesn't have to be an extraordinary gift, you know, a wonderful object. It's really seeing the power in the mind of that offering, of that letting go. And then the second classical, very strong conditioning force is that of aversion. It's grasping and then aversion. Aversion has many forms. We experience it as anger, as rage, as impatience, as fear, as guilt. 
there are two primary modes of manifestation. One is outflowing, like anger, and one is frozen and held in, like fear. And again, it's not that this state is bad or wrong and that we should condemn ourselves for having this force arise even very strongly. And certainly we all have a range of feelings that we have deemed unacceptable. And we may extend a lot of effort to not see them, to try to pretend that they're not there. But this is a kind of self-deception. We need to open to acknowledge honestly all aspects of our experience. But the relationship to these forces needs to be one of wisdom and compassion. A state like anger, for example, has a lot of positive aspects in some ways. For one thing, it's not a passive, complacent state. It can be very energized. And because of that energy, we can, through the force of anger, name injustice as injustice. We can set boundaries and say no. We can refuse to be defined by others and rather be looking within for our own sense of what is true. And anger as well can cut through surface appearances. It can demand to see a deeper truth not just stay on the surface. But the unskillful, the painful, the debilitating, the devastating aspects of anger are immense. And in fact, they far outweigh the positive force of it. And so the Buddha said, anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax is murderously sweet. In the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology, when anger is talked about, it's talked about in terms of its function. It's said that anger functions in a way that burns up its own support, so that it's likened to a forest fire, which can burn wild and free and leave the forest devastated. Anger can leave us devastated, just like a forest fire can leave us perhaps very far, far from where we'd actually like to be. It can be overwhelming. It can be very deluding. It's got qualities of narrowness, of isolation, of persecution, of hostility, all within it. Again, it's not bad or wrong. We have to see it as a conditioned state that functions in a certain way. When we are lost in it, there are certain consequences. And these are often very painful. It's a mind state that has a sort of tunnel vision to it. So that we're saying, in effect, you are that way and you always will be that way. Or I am that way and I always will be that way. We don't see moment to moment change very readily when we're lost in anger. We don't see the conditioned nature of things very easily when we're lost in anger. We can see that clearly in the experience of guilt. 
as compared to the experience of remorse, which we've talked about before. Guilt being a kind of lacerating self-hatred where we cannot let go of whatever it was that we have done. And so we have to think about it again and again and again and again. Whereas in a state of remorse, we can recognize and feel the pain, perhaps, of what we've done or what we've said, let go, and actually have the energy to move on. The state of guilt, like the state of anger, is very debilitating. It's exhausting. It doesn't leave us with the energy to change our lives. Sometimes I think about that image of the bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi tree, being attacked by Mara, which Guy talked about the other night. That very last, that final attack of Mara's, when Mara came up to the bodhisattva and basically said, by what right are you even sitting there with that broad, that complete an aspiration? Who do you think you are that you can have the, the belief that you might be enlightened, that you might be free? And in response, the bodhisattva reached over his knee in that very famous mudra that is depicted in, in so many Buddha statues and touched the earth. He called upon the earth itself to bear witness to all of the lifetimes in which he had practiced. Practices such as generosity, wisdom, energy, and so on. That created the, the wave of moral force that had brought him to sitting under the tree, that gave him the right to be there. And as he reached over his knee and touched the earth, asking the earth to bear witness, the earth responded, the earth moved, Mara was vanquished and went away. Bodhisattva went on sitting through the night and was fully enlightened. I think sometimes of that statement of the earth bearing witness believing that our actions are consequential, that if we act out of motivations or intentions that are filled with forces like greed and anger, that we will suffer. And so the same with others. You know, if they are acting or have acted in a way that is born out of greed and out of anger, they will suffer. We don't have to be agents of revenge in this life to make sure that people get what they deserve. The earth is bearing witness. Nothing we do is lost. It's all significant. It's all consequential. Our lives don't need to be dedicated to the force of persecution, of revenge. If we can let go of that burning, that... that fixed quality of anger, then we understand the possibility of actually experiencing metta. Metta for ourselves, metta for those 
we care about, that we're grateful to. Metta for the neutral person. Metta for those who are difficult in our lives. And finally, metta for all beings everywhere. When we practice metta for someone who is difficult, it's quite a powerful process because it's easy to confuse that feeling of love or the feeling of compassion with condoning another's actions, with being weakened, not standing up for ourselves, not naming injustice, not demanding appropriate treatment. And yet it's none of that. It is a sense of radical non-separation. Sometimes we describe it in this way. Because the Buddhist cosmology is so vast, and he did talk about lifetime after lifetime, in which we've all done everything, we could say that everybody here, all of us now, sitting in this room right now, have all done everything and to one another. We've all been one another's mothers and fathers and children and saviors and we've robbed one another, we've hurt one another, we've killed one another, we've helped one another. We've all done everything. And so there's no way to take a very separate stance as though to say I who am so immaculate see you miserable creature way over there and I know that I could never do such a thing it is just not so we've all done everything and one little turn of the wheel and it's all different if you don't believe that and you don't necessarily and you certainly don't have to, if that view of things does not feel comfortable, then just to understand the range of motivations that can arise in one's mind. Not that we act on them all, but just think about, what if you did? You know, in a single hour here, just sitting in this room, what if you acted on every single motivation that came up in your mind? You know, you'd stand up, you'd sit down, you'd go out and get a glass of water, you'd come back and, you know, you'd probably hit somebody and kick somebody and, you know, run out again and come back and, you know, I mean, there would be a lot going on. I mean, even if just one person here did that, you know, there'd be a lot going on. And we may be fortunate enough to have a certain relationship to the forces that arise in our minds so that we don't act them out all the time. But to say, oh, I could never conceive of having such a desire, well, guess again. You know, probably it's cooking. And, you know, to see that much anger, never. Well, we are all capable of that. And in a way, that brings a great compassion to understand that even as we look and look strongly and with great determination, perhaps, to change, 
a certain situation or certain action. It's not done from that stance of separateness, more as friends do. You know, most of us have friends who are not always perfect. And even if we are looking at that lack of utter perfection, we're doing it from a position of standing side by side. You know, there's this togetherness in that. There's a closeness in that, even in the honesty, even in the direct seeing. And that's what metta really means. We break down the sense of self and other, which creates so much suffering in our lives and so much confusion. To realize there is no other. And then we can look. This is the great radical force of metta. If we work with letting go of the anger, which doesn't mean pushing it away, it means seeing it for what it is without adding to it. Sometimes we talk about meditation as being non-doing. What that means is that we don't do the things that we ordinarily do when our experience arises, which is to say we don't try to prolong it. We don't try to push it away. We don't try to judge it or analyze it or make an entire self-image out of it. We don't try to fabricate something about what is happening. We are simply aware of what it is. It will do whatever it's going to do all by itself. That's why we keep saying, relax, settle back. You don't have to do anything. But of course we have great impulses to do. And so we relax and we relax and we come back and we keep coming back. If we can have a great force of anger arise in the mind and be practicing non-doing, we will see that it is like a visitor. If we get lost in it, it will be very painful. If we can see it for what it is, it will arise and pass away. Especially if we can feel compassion for ourselves in the experience of it, rather than distaste or fear or condemnation. We can understand that it's not a bad thing, it's a painful thing. And that compassion is the bridge for having true compassion for others. That when others are lost in anger, they are suffering just as we are lost and suffer. And so it's very helpful to revision how we look at these qualities, to see them as changing, to see them as suffering. If we can do that, then we will find that it will it will purify and we will experience the growth of the quality of metta. We do that through the actual letting go of the anger and we do that through the practice of metta as we've been doing.
Okay, the last of these very traditional conditioning forces is that of delusion. Delusion is a state of confusion. The Pali word is moha, which means literally to be stupefied. We experience it as confusion, as bewilderment, as dullness, as helplessness. It's a state of being in ignorance. Because of that ignorance, because of that uncertainty, there can be a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety in a state of delusion. And often we respond to that anxiety by clinging to viewpoint and having a very rigid mind. It's as though we're out in a storm and we want to find something that will give us shelter. The wind is howling, the rain is falling, we don't know where we are. We want to find something to hold on to for a feeling of safety. If we find anything, we will cling tenaciously to it because our whole sense of safety, of certainty, is dependent on that clinging. That's what happens in delusion. We don't just fog out. We hold on strongly to views, even though they're just views. This is where a lot of uncertainty leads to rigidity of mind. The proximate cause or the nearest arising condition of delusion is said to be unwise attention. It means we're not really paying attention to what's going on. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but I think it's fairly common where you're driving down a road someplace and all of a sudden you get the feeling, where am I? You know, am I on that route or that route? or depending on how often you travel, am I in California? (laughs) Wait a minute. It's just that moment of not knowing, that blankness. That's delusion. It creates a lot of restlessness and perplexity in our minds. We feel unsettled in the body and in the mind because we don't have a clear relationship to what's going on. It's as though we're inhabiting something strange. When delusion is strong, we don't experience our lives. We don't experience things in an integrated way. But it's like a puzzling array of pieces that don't seem to quite fit together. We don't see the relationship between the elements of our experience. And this leads to a lot of bias as we leap upon any solution to try to get some sense of, of understanding. One of the major consequences of delusion is that it also creates a kind of tunnel vision. It gives us a certain unawareness of context. And in fact, some vision of context, some broader vision is essential for true mindfulness. In the Buddhist teaching, this is called clear comprehension. 
So for example, one of the Buddha's recommendations about speech, about correct and appropriate speech, is to say that which is true and that which is useful. When he urged people to say that which is true, he didn't seem to mean that we should then go around blurting out to everybody everything that we feel about them and have always thought about them in a completely public situation. We need a sensitivity. We need a feeling or sense of discernment to say that which is true and that which is useful. We need to be quiet. We need to pay attention. We need to look carefully with some sensitivity, to look in context, to see the many aspects of what's going on, or as many as we can know for ourselves. It's not comprehension necessarily in an analytical or intellectual sense, but to know deeply for ourselves, to allow the situation where a silent, wordless understanding can come forth. We can be as skillful as we can. To be able to look at things as they're actually arising in the moment, without holding on rigidly to a view of what they must be. To see the reality that is being created in each moment is clear comprehension. You know, we may hear a statement like, heroin is a very dangerous drug, and that is certainly true. But is it necessarily as true for somebody who's terminally ill in excruciating pain? And what's the context of the reality of that moment? Can we be quiet enough and empty enough and clear enough to pay attention in the broadest possible sense? If we can, then we're not looking at the world through the narrowness of our rigid categories. We can find the world arising anew all of the time. It's a clear and deep perception of reality that's incorporating the matrix out of which things are arising. But if we're lost in delusion, we can easily cling to the view that what we believe is utterly, completely true. It has a kind of inherent reality or substance apart from conditions. And then we need to defend that. We need to have rationalizations that that bolster that. Sometimes I tell the story about the first time that, again, the first time that we came here to look at, at this building, to decide whether we were going to buy it uh, to run a retreat center. And we're taking a walk through all the various buildings. And we got uh, to a certain wing, which you're probably all familiar with. And uh, Joseph, who grew up in the Catskills, Catskill Mountains of New York State, took a look at the decor of this particular wing. And he said, boy, this looks just like a hotel in the Catskills. And that was it. It was a joke. 
you know, some months later, we'd done the whole thing. We, you know, the organization had bought the building and gotten the mortgage and we moved in. And we all were getting completely lost all of the time. So somebody made a map. It was the first map. We had kind of a resident cartographer and he went around and he opened every door, you know, and, and drew a little diagram of the room. So then the map went up on the bulletin board and there it was in black and white, Catskills. <laughs> and I thought, that's funny, you know. I thought it was a joke. But it became the Catskills and it never changed. Just a few years ago, a friend of mine told me that he came here to practice, and this was just a few years ago, he came here to practice, it was his first time, and he was taken on the tour of the facility. He said to his uh, tour leader, why is this wing called the Catskills? And the tour leader said to him, well, this is the wing of the building that lies the closest to the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> Which, first of all, is not true. It lies the furthest away. And second of all, what difference does that make? <laughs> like, why in the world would we have named a wing of the building in terms of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains? You know, but he absolutely believed that. Because the person who told it to him probably absolutely believed that. And he told me this, and I thought, it was a joke. <laughs> you know, Joseph made a joke a long time ago. You know, 15 years later, it's got a whole reason for being. That was just manufactured. This is delusion. <laughs> we live it in a lot of different ways. If we actually pay attention, if we pay careful attention to see things as they are arising, to see them in their nature, to see them in context, then we can come out of that. We begin to live with wise attention instead of unwise attention, and we begin to live with wisdom. It's a little bit like going backstage in a theater. And suddenly, we see things from a radically different perspective. Going backstage in the theater, we begin to see how much that we've believed in, how much we've looked at, how much we've relied on is really just because of costume, because of makeup, because of lighting. It's like special effects. That is actually the practice of mindfulness. It's the ability to go backstage and to see things clearly. That is the cutting edge of awareness. And so it's very powerful. The Buddha once said, one who has abandoned greed, hatred, and delusion, such a one has crossed the ocean of samsara with its waves and whirlpools, monsters and demons, has traversed it and gone to the other shore. So we come here to this kind of experience and we tend to see a lot of greed, anger and delusion because they are such strongly conditioned forces and yet, 
it's the very nature of going backstage is cutting through all of that appearance all of that imagery all of that make-believe all of that enchantment to be able to touch what our experience actually is what our lives actually are rather than having to split off from these feelings these motivating forces or try to deny them creating more separateness we include them in our awareness we use that experience to look deeply to see the nature of our conditioning to see what is it that I actually need in order to be happy right now or am I really paying attention am I seeing things in the broadest possible way or am I lost it's the very seeing that is important sometimes people come and they say it feels like all I see all day long is greed, hatred and delusion which could be close it's probably somewhat of an exaggeration but it's not uncommon and it's not personal the important thing is the clear seeing that is that is the purification right in a single moment without doing preparatory work without getting ready to let go that moment of clear seeing is the moment of going backstage and that's absolutely all that we need to do I'll close with this um, part of a poem by Pablo Neruda which I've always enjoyed because I think it reflects some of that innocent and tender inquiring spirit of mindfulness the title of the poem is flies enter a closed mouth and he says when did smoke learn how to fly when do roots talk with each other how do stars get their water why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign what are the tortoise's thoughts to which point do the shadows withdraw what is the song of the rain's repetitions where do birds go to die and why are leaves green what we know comes to so little and what we presume is so much let's sit together for a few minutes
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.